talk of the year on Arumia Mai, which is Follow Me, a series of discipleship, on discipleship that we're doing. And we're going to be touching some really fundamental things in terms of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And uh, we won't hit everything absolutely every Sunday, but we'll be revisiting some of the truths that we unpack. We'll come back again and again and again into the new year as well. So some of the subjects, you think, oh gosh, we've covered that or we touched on that. Well, that may be so, but we're going to come back to that subject again. Some of these foundational truths are so big, so profound, that we need to revisit them again and again, looking at them from different angles. And this would be true of today's talk as well. And I'll explain a little bit why further on. But I want to start by asking you something. Oh, can you make that out? Mm, I don't know. How many of you have been watching that Netflix series, The uh, Crown? Anybody been watching it? Hands up if you've been watching The Crown. Any Crown fans here? Well, there's a few. Some afraid to put their hands up, too embarrassed. But hey, this is a Netflix series on the Queen of England. And uh, Julie and I, we kind of uh, followed the first two seasons of The Crown. And uh, we've been watching this third season of The Crown. And uh, to be honest, it has to be said, we've not really been enjoying it so much. Uh, And the reason we've not enjoyed it so much is because uh, the Queen, basically, her facial expression never changes, and she looks miserable all of the time in The Crown series. I'm sure she probably isn't like that in real life, but in the series, she looks so miserable and uh, doesn't change her expression at all. And the reason for that, I think, is because she, she feels like she has no power. She can't do anything. She's a queen, but she can't do anything. And she's got this kind of ongoing conflict with her prime minister, right? The, Ted Heath at the moment in the series. And, uh, and the prime minister, every week, the prime minister comes in for an audience, his weekly audience, and he comes through the door, and he's meticulous about following protocol, So he bows at the door and then shuffles forward and bows again before the queen, your majesty, your majesty. And then he proceeds to tell her what she has to do. It's it's strange, really. She tells her what what he wants her to do. And and she's struggling at times, like, I don't want to do this, but but he's the prime minister. He tells her what to do. And at the end of that, he kind of bows his head again, your majesty, your majesty, shuffles back and then leaves. And it's like, She's got all the majesty, but he's got all the power. And uh, that's how it seems. And, uh, and to be honest, I, I struggle to watch this series without feeling an ache in my heart because I feel often, man, that's how we, actually, that's how I can be towards God. You know, we, we can come for our weekly audience on a Sunday even and proclaim, your majesty, your majesty, And let's face it, some of the songs we sing are tremendous for acknowledging his majesty. Here's one that we've been singing over the last several months. Just some of the words there. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a wonderful name it is. You have no rival. You have no equal. Now and forever, our God reigns. Yours is the kingdom Yours is the glory. Yours is the name above all names. What a powerful name it is. What a powerful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ, my King. Wow. That is majesty, right? That is is majesty. And we sing that song, don't we? And we sing it with all of our hearts, don't we? There's no sense of hypocrisy in it. We sing it with all of our hearts. And yet actually, when we come out of the hall and go back to our lives... 
and take an honest look at our lives, often if we're honest, I, I say we, I say I, I think sometimes there is a rival and there is an equal. I think often he may be the king, but often I am, we are the prime minister. You know, we tend to call the shots in our lives, what we spend our money on, uh, who we hang out with, the relationships we have, the jobs that we go for, the ambitions that we chase, the dreams that we want to see realize, the programs we watch, anything. It's like we hold on to the real power. And, no, and the thing is, none of it, I don't think it's vindictively done. I don't think we do it on purpose, actually. I think a lot of it's subconscious. I think it comes down to the fact that we've been raised in a world that encourages us to be the king, as it were, the real king in our lives. That's the world that we're in. That, that should be our expectation. And our flesh is orientated that way anyway. Our flesh loves that. I mean, one of our highest values these days is self-sufficiency, isn't it? And independence is a high value that our, our culture values. And one of, our, one of our whole education system is geared towards making you so that you don't depend on anyone or anything, so that you can be the haves rather than the have-nots. Yeah? To be one of the haves, not the have-nots. And, and as we've actually grown to have more in our society, other values have crept alongside to, to dovetail in with that. Other negative values, actually, like entitlement. It's like we are entitled to have more in our society. I'm entitled to have more. I'm entitled to do what I want, to be what I want, think what I want, buy what I want. I'm entitled to choose. And choice is everything these days. In that sense, we're all pro-choice. That's the new idol. I am entitled. I am, I am. And so we become more and more the prime minister of our lives. And the trouble with that is that it is at such odds with the Bible. Right with the scriptures, because the Bible teaches us that, yeah, we are receiving an eternal divine kingdom, but we are not the king of that kingdom. He's the king. He really is the king. So you've got this clash, haven't you? He's the king, but we are trying to hold on to the power. And the result is that our discipleship can get very, very mixed up. And so when Jesus says, Arumi Amai, we tend to say back to him, Lord, Arumi Amai. You know, where are you, Lord? Come and bless my money. Come and bless my job, my ambition, my desire. Come, where are you, Lord? You're not there. Where are you? Bless. Bless what I'm doing. And yet the Bible is so clear, isn't it? <laughs> Daniel 4, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom never ends. He is above all authority and power, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the great I am that I am. He is truly the king. He is Lord. He is truly Lord. And so Peter, in 1 Peter, he's talking to the believers of his own day, and they aren't getting their own way back then. They're, they're suffering. They're going through persecution. Families are being split up. People are losing their jobs for their faith. And Peter's answer to all of that is quite simple. He simply says, Set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. Set apart Christ as Lord. In other words, settle it deep in your innermost being. 
Jesus is my Lord. Yes, he's my friend, he's my brother, he's my saviour, but he's my Lord. He is my Lord. And you see, I think this is a crucial foundation of our discipleship because I, I would suggest this to you, the degree to which we do not receive him as Lord is the degree to which we are not receiving his kingdom. I think they're tied together, actually. So it's an important issue, and no wonder we often have a problem. So today, I wanted to just bring before you, simple really, four really obvious biblical answers as to why it is right, actually, to cut across the thinking of our age and to set apart Jesus as Lord in our hearts. All right, the end of one year, the beginning of the next, I want to remind you of four truths about God that makes it right that he should be Lord in your heart and mind. Okay, so that's where I'm going to go. So the first thing is this. Why he is to be Lord in your hearts. Number one, simple really, he is to be your Lord because he is your creator. I want to make this very clear to each one of you today. You are not an accident, all right? You're not a chemical reaction, all right? You're not a disappointment or a surprise to your parents. No, you're not a statistic in a hospital. You are created by God. All right, God is your creator. He intimately formed you. I love Psalm 139 for you. Let's all read, read this one. It's a powerful verse. Everybody, you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I want a beautiful, intimate image. So intimate. Spurgeon once uh, reshaped that phrase by saying, you formed my inmost parts and passions. All right, that's such intimacy. He wired you together physically, emotionally, spiritually, your personalities. Parents, as you look at your kids, you often find yourself thinking, how could those two come out of the same person? They're so different. Well, it's because God crafted their personalities. He intimately wove you. And in fact, so intimate, he was already at work in you before you were conscious of anything. Isn't that amazing? I first met my son Sam as a, as a smudge on an ultrasound scan, all right? Uh, and the ultrasound scans back then weren't as clear as they are today. But even back then, I could just work out his little fingers and his little toes and his, and his big Hanari head, because we've all got big heads in our family, and the beard. I could see his beard as well, because he's always had a beard, it seems to me. He was growing one by the age of five, certainly. I mean, uh, he's always had this beard. I could, see, I could see Sam right there. And the thing is this, is that, is that as I watched him, you know what? I, I felt awkward because I felt like I was trespassing on, on something holy, actually. I felt like I was looking over God's shoulder as he was intimately shaping a little person, a little soul. And I was watching what only God sees and does. It was one of those profound moments. Job 33 says this, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Right, listen, he gave you life. And you see, that in itself requires a response from you and me. A response of thanks and permission for him to speak into our lives, doesn't it? I was watching a documentary a while ago, a mum a fraught mum tearing her hair out. Her teenage daughter was on the rampage. She'd been out all night at parties, getting drunk or whatever. 
and in this documentary, her mum confronts her daughter and says, I gave birth to you. I have a right to speak into your life. <laughs> and in the sense, everybody kind of sympathised with her. Well, how much more so God, who created you eternally, who created in you a, a soul that is there to live forever. He has a right to speak in our lives. All right, you gave me life, Lord. I came from you. You are my Lord. That's the first thing, all right? So, he is our creator. Second thing, second thing. He is your Lord because he is your sustainer. All right, your sustainer. So, so um, what that means is uh, Hebrews 1, 3, everything you see and you don't see is sustained by him. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And then Paul quotes a, a, a verse in Acts 17. In him we live and move and have our being. Now just think about that. In other words, if God withdrew himself from you now, you would simply fall apart in your seat. He sustains you. He holds your life in his hand. Now that's a, a reassuring thing actually, but also a sobering thing. And I know that to be true. You see, I was thinking about this the other day. Uh, I've never been a great flyer, I have to say. Right? I've flown so many miles over the years, many, many countries over the years, but I've never been a great flyer. I, get, I put up with it, I do it, but I don't enjoy it. But years and years ago, I used to be terrified of flying. I, I was a terrible, terribly frightened uh, and so when I got onto a plane, I'd freeze up. I don't know if anybody else has this. I, I'd sweat. My heart would beat. I'd start to hyperventilate. I'd sit in the chair. My hands would be like, like clutching like this. And if I went on a long-haul flight, I'd be exhausted by the end because I was so terrified all the way through. And I'd be praying all the way, God, please keep the plane in the air. I was terrified as a flyer. Until one day, one day it ended just like that, this, this fear. And the way it ended, what happened was... I was flying into, I think, Heathrow or somewhere, and I was exhausted. I've been praying all the way through the flight. God, please make the plane fly. And I finally get to the airport, and, and I was so relieved. You know those movie clips of the Pope when he used to get off the plane and kiss the ground? And uh, I didn't do that. I didn't do that, but I felt like doing that. And uh, I remember landing, and I remember praying fervently and giving thanks, actually. I gave thanks to God. God, thank you. Another miracle. You kept the plane in the air. I'm so grateful. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for bringing me back to the ground safely. You've brought me to safety. I'm back on the ground. Thank you so much. And I remember very clearly God speaking to me on that day, very quietly, and he said to me, Pete, just a word, just a word. Uh, actually, what makes you think you're safe now? Is what he said. <laughs> actually, I'm sustaining your life now every bit as much as I was sustaining your life up there. There's no difference. There's no difference. It's as precarious for you now on the ground as it was in the air, so you might as well trust me. And my fear went just like that. And it's true. I thought, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm as dependent on him now on the ground as I was in the air, so really I can trust him for both. And the fear left just like that. He is your Lord. He holds your life in his hand. Now, now that means this. It means that I am thankful but I'm also sober in the sense that I have to say, God, thank you for life. Thank you for life. And also, Lord, I am not independent of you. I'm not self-sufficient. I am cast on you. I need you to uphold me. You are my Lord, yeah? So, so he is your creator. He is your sustainer. Thirdly, he is your redeemer. 
We've already touched on this this morning. He is your that means that means that word redeem means he bought you back. He, it means to buy back, right? Galatians four four and five. God sent forth His Son to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. In other words, Jesus bought you back. You say, well, what do you mean bought me back? Well, I didn't know that I was for sale. What do you mean he bought me back? Well, the Bible's really clear. We were all born under sin. All right, that's Romans 3.9. We were all born under sin. And that means this, that we were born separated from God. We were cut off from God. We were dead spiritually. And we were constantly sinning again and again because of our sinful nature. And therefore, we were unable to relate or approach a God who is holy, 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 beyond your capacity to imagine. He is holy. And the thing is, that put us in a terrible situation, didn't it? Because if nothing was done about that, about our sin, not only would we be separated from God and alone without Him throughout our lives, but we would be separated from Him after we died. And that is a terrible prospect, alone, without God, and without hope. Listen, I think this, one of the greatest handicaps we carry as 21st century people is the illusion that this life is it, there is no other reality. That's an illusion, and it's a particular handicap, I believe, of the 21st century, that this is it, there is no heaven. In fact, heaven and hell is what you make of your life here. And you often hear people say that, don't you? Well, you can make your life hell, or you can make your life heaven. You decide, there's nothing else. And the trouble is, there's a whole theology that's coming off the back of that. Listen, we need to understand there is an eternity out there. All right? And this life is very short and small in the light of eternity. And whether you're aware of it or not, you are on the very verge of eternity this morning. Anybody, I don't suppose anybody told you that, but you are right now on the very verge of eternity. The trouble is, we are unaware of it. But we're all on that verge. It's like when you're at the beach, you know, you might be at the beach at Plymouton Beach and the rocks are there and the little pools, the uh, uh, rock pools there. You can, give your, you can give hours playing in these little rock pools at the beach and you might do that sometimes. You're playing with this little rock pool and then eventually you get up from the rock pool, you stand up and you look out and you think, my goodness, I'm on the edge of an ocean. So it is here. We are on the edge of eternity. This life is the rock pool. This is the rock pool. Eternity is just out there. And to spend that eternity lost and alone and without help. Listen, hell is not what you make your, of your life here. There is an eternal state and there is a place that is a reality. That is simply biblical truth. But Jesus, at the cost of shedding his blood bought you back. He paid the price. He paid the price and the punishment for your sin and your sin, he paid for it. 1 Peter says this, he says, you were redeemed not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. He bought you back. Jesus bled for you on that cross to bring you back from a lost eternity and to bring you into his family. Hallelujah. You were bought at a price. In fact, Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Folks, we are not our own. 
the precious blood of Jesus bought us. He is your Lord. Now, he's also your caring Lord, compassionate Lord, loving Lord. There's a saying, isn't there, that how much we value something is proved by how much we're prepared to pay for it. Well, Jesus spilt his blood for you, went through the anguish of the cross and the torture of the cross for you, the anguish of being separated from his Father, the anguish of carrying the punishment for your sins for you. He must love you very much. And he does. He is our loving Lord. But he is your Lord. So, creator, sustainer, redeemer, finally, get this, he is your Lord because he is your perfecter. All right? This is uh, Psalm 138. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. In other words, God's intent is, is to work in your life and mold it and shape it through crises and challenges, through people and problems, through hassles and, 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 and difficulties and even suffering. His aim is to work in you so he can bring you to your life to its ultimate perfection. Your ultimate perfection. And isn't it a wonderful thing to see something worked on and worked on until it reaches its ultimate perfection? Now, uh, Lawrence Collingborn, several years ago now, uh, Lawrence preached a magnificent sermon. Uh, in that sermon, he talked about the unfinished statues of Italy. Uh, some of you may remember that talk, the unfinished statues in Italy. And what these are are statues that are sculptors years and years ago, centuries ago, working on these big blocks of stone. And for some, we don't know why, but they stopped working on these statues. And so they either ran out of money or died or something and left behind these unfinished statues. And, uh, and here's one of them here. You just make it out. So you've got a big blob of rock. And out of that rock, you see emerging an arm and, and a leg. And it's really well done. And it speaks of what it could be. It's great potential. Wonderful potential, but it's not there. It's like it's been abandoned. But you can even see there that something's been carved out of it. Here's another one. Carved out of stone, this, this legs and arms. And here's a third one. The features aren't quite there. They're not quite, not quite detailed. Here's another one, a blob of stone. But out of it, you can see the torso, the arms, the shoulders. Really well done. But it's unfinished. It's, about, it's like, uh, like unfinished or, or potential. And uh, the beautiful thing is this, is that when it's fulfilled, when it gets to its perfection, well, it can be one of the world's greatest pieces of art. It can be stunning, absolutely stunning. Well, the promise is this, is that God is at work in you for something stunning. So Ephesians says this, Ephesians 2.10, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand. I love that phrase. It's a wonderful scripture. Workmanship there, as many of us know, comes from a Greek word from which we get the word art form or poem. In other words, you are to be God's poem, God's work of art. That's the point. He's at work in you to produce something stunning and to create something beautiful. The Bible says we are created for the display of his splendor. And so the final product, wow, is amazing. In other words, in the heart of God, it's almost like this. There is a picture of you, how you will become in your perfect fulfillment, your perfect expression. And he is working in you to bring you to that place. It's a wonderful thought. It's glorious. Now, you may not see it all this side of glory, but it's begun. 
He is the one who will bring you to that perfection. Now, now listen to this. This is where the parable of the statues, as with all good parables, can only be taken so far. Because the reality is, we aren't passive bits of stone. We have a part to play in this process, don't we? So, so Paul says in the Philippians, you know, uh, um, God is at work in you, so you work out your salvation. We have a part to play. So we're not passive. There's something we can do. There's an attitude that we can take. And it's summed up in that one command at the, early, early at the start, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. In other words, Lord, you are the craftsman. Have your way in my life. That's the attitude. In every area of my life, in my marriage, in my finances, in my work, in my spare time, in my ambitions, in my dreams. I don't want to hold anything back because, God, you're at work in me and your heart is to turn me, to shape me into something glorious. The ultimate expression of who you created me to be for. It's a wonderful prospect. So our heart is to say, come into my life and reign in me. You know the perfect work of art you're crafting me to. You know, you hear that phrase sometimes, don't you, when someone has mucked up their lives and end up behind bars or, or really a wreck of their lives, we often use that phrase, what a shame, he had such potential. He had such potential. The fact is, God has created you, he sustains you, he has redeemed you, and he's wanting to perfect you. The question is, will you allow him to bring that through? Will you work with his spirit? Really, will you begin to again set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts? Would you make that your vision and your value? You know, it's interesting. This is the close of one year. It's the beginning of the next. And now is a great time to make that, that choice to resolve in your heart. I don't know what last year or this last year has been like for you. You may have had a great year. You may have had a less than great year. You may have noticed things falling apart slightly at home or maybe in your own spiritual walk with God or maybe you've cut a few corners, you felt a bit of compromise coming in, a little bit of sin here and there. Maybe it's been a plateau year for you, 2019. Well, let's resolve this morning to leave it behind or those parts of it that we're less than happy with. And let's pray again, come afresh, Lord. I lay down my prime ministerial rule and I say Lord would you please be king in my life it's a powerful statement to make it's a powerful resolve to have in our hearts during the week I was uh, I had a little prophetic picture really during the week and the prophetic picture was this it was me walking along and then looking in my pocket pulling out my car keys and uh and, and giving giving God my car keys giving Jesus my car keys and it's like the car is the car of my life. I'm saying, God, would you please take my car keys? Would you tell me where to go, how fast I should go, uh, what I should do and carry in the boot? Lord, would you please drive my car? Now, most of the men here can think, well, that's a hard thing to do because we don't never like giving our keys to anybody, do we? Uh, we like to be in control. I don't know about you, but I don't like being driven around in a car. I like to drive it. And there are some of us here who are desperate to hold on to their car keys. Well, I just feel this, that God would say to you, and maybe there's one or two particularly, you need to give me your keys. You need to give me your car keys. 
And I want to just put that out there to you this morning. There may be one or two here, and you've never given him your keys. You may have come to church. You may have, I don't know, turned up at Alpha. You may have, may have just had an interest, and you've come along because your, your parents or your wife or your husband brings you along, but you've never consciously made that step of putting the keys into the hands of God. Well, at the end of 2019, and as 2020 begins, now is a good day. The reality is, you are on the verge of eternity. You are on the verge. We all are. So let's put our keys where they belong. And the God who created us, the God who sustains us in life, the God who redeemed us, and the God who will perfect us. Let's stand, shall we? Let's just stand. Hallelujah. 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 Let's just bow our heads for a second. This is the close of a year. Obviously, we'll meet together again next weekend. Saturday and Sunday is going to be a great time. But it's like now's an opportunity to reflect. 2019, Lord, there are areas of my life I'd never let you in. You know what they are. You can come here, we look so together sometimes, don't we? We look like we've got it all sorted out. But you know in your heart where you stand before God. So Father, we stand before you now and we say we love you. We thank you, Lord, that you are our creator. We praise you, Lord, that you're our sustainer. We are alive because of you. Lord Jesus, thank you that you're our Redeemer, that at great cost to yourself, you brought us back. And Lord, we thank you that you're our perfecter. And that, Lord, in your heart, you have a plan for our lives. You have a picture of what we shall be, what we were meant to be. And so for our part, Father, we say, Lord, we turn our lives afresh over to you. We give you the keys to our car. And we say, Lord, please, we set your part as Lord in our hearts. Come upon us, we pray. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Just feel as we're standing here. You know, lives can be changed. I remember, funny, that fear of flying disappeared in a moment. There are moments in our lives that can change us by the way we respond. And I don't want to just pass this opportunity because you know where you stand before God. You know what you're yearning for, what you long for to see in your life. There is a place where you need to give the keys afresh to God. If that's you this morning, I know to all of us to some degree, but there are some particularly this morning, and you know who you are, and God has his finger on your life, and he's saying, I want the keys. Give me the keys. Trust me with the keys. Trust me with the cash. Trust me with your marriage. Trust me with your children. Trust me with your job. Trust me with the place you want to live. Trust me. Trust me with your keys. I sustain you. I have a plan for you. Now trust me, says the Lord. 
Will you trust him? Will you trust him? Will you trust him? He is trustworthy. We're going to sing this last song now. Sam's going to lead us in the song. And as we sing the song, I encourage you, exhort you, plead with you to give him the keys. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And maybe one or two of you particularly, and you know you can't hide in the safety of your chair where you're standing now, but you know at the beginning of a new year you need to make a step. And for you, putting the keys in his hands it's like you coming forward down the front here and saying, Lord, I give you the keys. For some of you, you may have to do that. And God will meet you here and take you forward. So if that's you, as we sing the song, you come forward. We'd love to stand with you and pray with you. Hallelujah. Thanks, Thanks.